Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I am not Bill Press, I'm Jeffrey Four, Editor-in-Chief of National Journal, sitting in for Bill, who is on vacation. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday, August 5th. We have a ton of stuff to cover this morning, from last night's big news about reconciliation, to Tuesday's wild night on the primary calendar, to Pelosi triggering the Chinese Communist Party. Here to help us sort it all out. Zach Cohen, Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. Good morning, Zach. Hey, good morning, Jeff. Jessica Taylor, Senate and Governor's Editor for the Cook Political Report. Hello, Jessica. Good morning. And Sharice Jate, White House correspondent at HuffPost. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. So, big news breaking last night, just in time for us to have to rewrite our entire story at National Journal. Uh, The Senate appears to have a deal on the $700 billion reconciliation package. Not sure if it's the deal we deserve or if if it's just the deal that Gotham needs right now, but it's a deal nonetheless. Uh, This all happened after the enigmatic Senator Kirsten Sinema successfully scrubbed a tax provision on carried interest and then blessed the overall deal. Zach, uh, since you are our Senate savant, I'm going to start with you. Uh, First off, uh, what is carried interest exactly, and uh, and why is this the hill that she chose to die on, so to speak? Yeah, so carried interest is one of those things that cinema sort of as soon as we saw this deal between Senators Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin, we knew that she was going to have an issue with not even closing this loophole, but just kind of narrowing it. Um, and basically, they've sort of agreed at this point that that provision that Schumer and Manchin had agreed to is going to get dropped from this overall package, this tax break on carried interest, like you mentioned, which now means that you know wealthy private equity managers, venture capitalists, they're going to be able to continue to pay a lower capital gains rate on basically their main form of compensation. And so Wall Street's going to have a real field day with this particular development. Um, and they've made a couple of other changes as well. There's still a, a sort of 15% minimum corporate tax on corporations, um, as well as a new 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. And so they think that more or less, this is going to keep the revenue uh, for this bill um, where it is. So that way they continue to promote it as something that'll cut the deficit by roughly $300 billion over the next 10 years. Um, and so those are some of the main tax changes they've made. But I think this bill does have a couple more steps to go before it gets across the finish line and uh, should happen sometime this weekend. Yeah, that, the, I was going to ask, the parliamentarian is still reviewing this uh, for the, the quote unquote birdbath to make sure this all uh, uh, matches up with reconciliation rules. Uh, but is there anything else that could trip this up? Or are we uh, basically on a glide path for final passage this weekend? Yeah, the Senate parliamentarian has to sort of complete her review of this bill because remember, Democrats are trying to pass it through something called the budget reconciliation package. And I won't get into all the nerdy details, but essentially it has to meet very specific statutory budgetary rules in order to avoid a Republican filibuster and avoid increasing the hurdle from 50 votes, a simple majority, which Democrats do have, to 60 votes, which they don't. 
And so that review has to get finished. The Senate's out uh, as we're taping this on Friday, and they'll be back Saturday afternoon. And the and Schumer last night said that they plan to introduce the full bill Saturday. So the parliamentarian's kind of in crunch time here to get this done. And then after that, there'll be something called the Voterama. And for legislative geeks like me, it's very exciting to cover because basically any senator can bring up any amendment they want as long as it's relevant to the package they're discussing. Um, and those those amendments could actually change the bill um, depending on how things play out. And so you could see some sort of live legislating on the floor. And so for C-SPAN nerds, it's going to be a real show. And it could uh, put senators on the record with uncomfortable votes, right? Of course, yeah. I think there, there are talks about amendments about the the border and about um, Medicare expansion. Uh, there's talk of, you know, I'm sure they'll talk about taxation, right? And, you know, is this going to raise taxes on this group or that group? Um, this is, the Voterama is really at its core a political exercise. And it's a lot of political theater. I was talking to uh, Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina. And he said, yeah, hey, I, I don't usually, you know, even submit amendments for stuff like this because I kind of see it as a show um, and it's not really going to change the bill at all. But he's submitting a health care one this year because he thinks there's a chance that could actually make it into the final bill, even if Republicans don't actually support it. Um, and so certainly there's a lot of opportunity, especially being so close to the midterms to try to score some points here. If this gets through, it continues a bit of a Democratic winning streak. The bill to help veterans exposed to toxic burn pits passed with 86 votes. NATO expansion to Sweden and Finland passed with just one dissenting vote. Uh, That's on top of the CHIPS bill last week that passed with 64 votes. Gun safety vote earlier this summer, 65 votes. Uh, Sharish, I'm going to go to you. Uh, Have Democrats learned to just take the win and put Republicans on the defensive? And, And what's the White House's role in all this? It seems like the West Wing, of late at least, has been maybe less concerned about placating the left than it was a year ago. Are they happy to just get half a loaf on some of these bills now rather than no loaf at all like they did last year? No, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, uh, Joe Biden was in the Senate for decades. That, that this is what he's used to is getting, you know, half a loaf is a lot. Getting yeah. a few slices is fine if, if in the end it's it's toward uh, whatever goal that he's that he's looking for. I think the one thing that he really personally wanted was the burn pits bill. And uh, obviously that was, it's hard for a rational person to oppose that. And that was a no brainer. Um, uh, you know, these other things though, I mean, gun safety is, is, is a real, real incremental step toward, toward what gun, uh, you know, gun control advocates really want. Um, same thing with the with the with the the NATO treaty. I mean, who's going to oppose that? Why would you, why would anyone oppose letting Sweden and um, you know and Finland into into uh, that? That just it's just silly. You so, have to ask Josh Hawley why anyone would oppose. Well, it. you know, uh, let's move on from that one. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's it. it they I guess have wised up to say, okay, you know what? We ought to we ought to take our wins now and uh, and stop pandering to everybody who is part of the of the coalition to get me uh, the, the presidency because that's gonna not gonna help in these in these midterms coming up in the end I don't know how much these bills really matter to voters I mean I, I used to cover a lots of different things before I started covering politics and people don't know stuff they don't know what's in bills they don't know that bills even pass so you know I think there's a lot of hand-wringing among folks up here in DC about what's in this bill and what's not in this bill and what passed and what did and in the end is inflation down if so then uh, the president's party might have a better shot if it's if it's not then it won't it's it's really that simple I 
Jessica, probably a good time to bring you in on on that. Um, will any of this matter politically? All this uh, all this legislative uh, success. It, it always seems to me uh, that that voters aren't inclined to reward politicians for what they've done so much as for what they promise to do. Well, given where the Biden administration has been really since a year ago when their fortunes really drastically turned, Biden's approval rating started to crater amid Afghanistan, Delta, and uh, rising inflation. He had really not gotten any much, could not point to much of anything as a as a major accomplishment in um, infrastructure bill, but that was about it. But there does seem to have been a sea turn over the past few weeks. Um, Democratic strategists that I have talked to that are especially closely watching the battle for the Senate with it being 50, 50, they are very encouraged by sort of these signs of life and things that they are passing, including this reconciliation bill. Um, depending upon what ends up getting through with the Voterama bills, as uh, Zach mentioned. Um, And so it does feel like there is some action that they can point to. And when we look at Biden's numbers, where he is is struggling is with his base voters and with independents. And so does this sort of, we can point to concrete things that we have now done um, and can move forward with, concrete ways to try to stop inflation. Again, this was a White House that for a long time was ignoring warnings that it was even going to be an issue. And, you know, I think a lot of that put them where they are now politically, but is it a little bit too little too late? It could be. But again, we see the uh, generic ballot um, in places slightly favoring Democrats. You know, we have seen evidence in this week's Kansas vote that abortion is becoming increasingly a motivating factor for Democrats. Now, does it supplant inflation and concerns about, you know, rising prices and things when it comes down to it, when it's not just a clear up or down vote, do you support or oppose these protections? It gets a little more muddled there. But I think all of these things are positives for a White House that has really struggled to have a coherent message as a way to combat everything they're facing. And even from the perspective of the left, I mean, if you take the original COVID bill, the infrastructure bill, and then if this package passes, you're talking about $3.5 trillion in new spending, which is not nothing. Um, if If... You asked, uh, even people on the far left, if you asked them at the beginning of this administration, if they would take three and a half trillion dollars in new spending, uh, they they probably would have taken that. Right. Well, and I think especially some of the climate provisions and new energy vehicles, ways that that is going to provide, um, because we see climate concerns, a major motivating factor on the left now. Have they gotten everything that they want? You know, student debt forgiveness is still out there is really something that we saw progressives really wanting. You're not going to get everything um, we, we've talked about just, and also it is not as though Democrats went in to this Congress with an overwhelming mandate. They lost seats in the house, had a very narrow single seat majority and had the very narrowest Senate majority that you could have with ties only being broken by vice president Harris. So getting anything passed through Again, you have some people that are just not 
looking at the realities of the political division that we have that are expecting, okay, we have the White House, we have the Senate, we have the House, we should be able to pass those things. That's not how it works, especially when you're running into the Senate, where in many instances, you have to have 60 votes in order to move things. Yeah. And it will be a victory if they are able to get this this through under reconciliation and just the ways that it has all come together. It's taken really Herculean efforts to get, you know, the very disparate members of the Democratic caucus on board, particularly Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Uh, Sharish, two big foreign policy stories this week. Uh, the killing of Zawahiri, which was what, almost 21 years in the making, uh, and Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Uh, let's, let's listen to what, what Pelosi said in Taiwan. We want Taiwan to always have freedom with security, and we're not backing away from that. The White House was a little bit skittish about this visit uh, at the outset. Did the White House finally make peace with her visit? I think so. And a part of me wants <laughs> believes that maybe some of the the, the discord between between the the White House and Speaker Pelosi was a little bit of theater uh, to just to have some sort of plausible deniability as to whatever she might end up saying. Sure. You know, I, it doesn't hurt the. Um, the the Biden administration to have a plane that says United States of America land in, in Taipei. I mean that's just that's just reality uh, when they're trying to to have a, a to show that they're that they're tough with with China right now. Um, long term, I mean, are we really going to go to war over Taiwan? Um, I don't know, and I, I don't think most Americans would want that. On the other hand, I mean, China's being awful aggressive. In places outside of, of Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits, uh, you know the entire Southeast Asian waters. So that's a that's a really big deal. Uh, the uh, the killing of Zawahiri probably not as big a deal, but you know it, it never hurts uh, an incumbent president to do away with a really bad guy. And uh, and Biden will will uh, get whatever reward you get when when you get someone like that. Yeah. Uh, so, Zach, this continues a pretty good run for Biden, yet we had three members of Congress this week uh, say that Biden either shouldn't run again or that he might not run again, although one of them, Carolyn Maloney, in her uh, primary debate with Jerry Nadler, uh, she then backed off of that. Let's listen to what she said. Should President Biden run again in 2024? Yes. Mr. Nadler. Too early to say. Ms. Maloney. I don't believe he's running for re-election. Ooh, uh, and she had to uh, clean up on aisle nine with with that one. Uh, Zach, what's uh, what's the dynamic going on here in in, in Congress with uh, with this dance that members are doing around what's going to happen in twenty twenty four? Well, it could be a wide open primary field if he doesn't run, right? Or you know, if if he doesn't run, and then it's even just Vice President Kamala Harris um, seen as sort of the likely front runner, but not necessarily given. Um, the, the first, you know, it's, it's not like people would just defer to her automatically. Right. And so I think there's probably some effort to maintain alliances with potential front runners. And then there's obviously the midterms coming up where people are still trying to appeal to their voters there. Although it's funny, I was talking to a couple of frontliners the other week, um, and asking them, would you campaign with Biden right now, just given his approval ratings? And this is during, as we've been discussing, this sort of legislative gambit that they've been going through and, and racking up wins. But the, you know, the president's approval ratings are still at a sort of historic low for a president at this time in his tenure. And they were, and they're okay with it. I think the 
you know, the presidential bully pulpit still carries a lot of weight with voters. You can still help them raise money and still help them uh, get attention. What this also gives frontliners is an opportunity to sort of choose your own adventure among all the different legislative achievements that they've had. You could be Mark Kelly talking about semiconductor funding, especially at the the fabricators in Arizona. You can be Maggie Hassan talking about infrastructure funding and fixing potholes in New Hampshire. Um, and the, President Biden is, is only going to help sort of draw attention to those issues because his name is going to be on all of it. Um, so, but that's going to get harder as time goes on, especially as Biden. Uh, you know, is, is up for re-election in 2024, it'll be more of a referendum on him and less on the party in general. There's a lot more to talk about, including the results from Tuesday night's big primary races, but we'll get to that after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour, sitting in this week for Bill, along with Sharish Date, Jessica Taylor, and Zach Cohen. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work, taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour from National Journal, sitting in for Bill, along with Jessica Taylor from the Cook Political Report, Sharish Date from HuffPost, and Zach Cohen from Bloomberg Government. Uh, we had a big primary night on Tuesday, perhaps one of the biggest of the cycle, given the stakes that were involved and the states that were involved. But the biggest surprise of the night wasn't a primary at all. Uh, as Jessica mentioned earlier, it was a referendum in Kansas on amending the state constitution to remove protections for abortion rights. It lost badly by almost 19 points as pro-choice voters turned out en masse, even in a deep red state like Kansas. Uh, Jessica, a lot of observers have been trying to read the tea leaves of this result in terms of what it might mean for the fall. Uh, on the one hand, you could say that the GOP is on the wrong side of a wedge issue, on the other hand, some observers have said, well, abortion is explicitly on the ballot in this case, and it's not going to be explicitly on the ballot, at least not in every state in, in the fall. Um, how do we read this? I think it's a couple of ways. It is the first data point we have post Dobbs about where voters stand and voters in a pretty conservative state where they stand. And especially just the turnout here was particularly interesting how strong it was given that there was really no no motivating 
you know, Democratic primary at the top of the ticket that was driving people out. There wasn't even really many Republican primaries that were driving people out. Um, very contested governor's race there. The players have been set for a while. And yes, it where we see Biden's weaknesses, especially when we look at his approval rating, is with the base. Um, if he can bring Democratic voters back into the fold there, and it's not necessarily that they're going to vote for Republicans, but that they might stay home. So if this is a way to counter what we expect to be very strong Republican turnout and what we have seen in primaries so far from Republicans, and when you get down into likely voter screens, you just continually see that Republicans are the most motivated voters. If this is a way for Democrats to motivate their base to come out, if it could be a more neutral type environment, that benefits Democrats. But when it comes, there's only a few other places where this abortion question could be an up or down vote, Kentucky, Michigan, probably, which will be key in that governor's race. But otherwise you're going to have to weigh candidates of whether, okay, do, do I, am I willing to support a candidate that maybe doesn't side with me on abortion because I like their position on what they would do on inflation, or I don't like what Democrats have done on the issue. I still think that we cease to continue to see that inflation, the economy is the overwhelming issue that affects everyone. And even when you have good economic indicators, um, as the white house has had going on and a strong jobs report and a dip in unemployment that we just came out today, this morning, as we're on here, um, unless people are feeling that if they're feeling their grocery bill go down, if, if they feel that the, they're paying, less for gas. That's what it's about. Because if you're struggling to pay bills, to keep your family fed, to find baby's formula, like that doesn't matter. You're not going to want some abstract number. This this comes down to how is this affecting me? And so I look at it that way, but also it is a real warning sign for Republicans And I think it's going to matter more so in governor's races, given that the Dobbs decision sent this back to the states to decide. So I look at governor's races in Michigan, in Wisconsin, um, in Georgia, perhaps Maine, um, places like that, where the governor could be a stop to especially Republican legislatures in Wisconsin, for instance, which I wrote about actually on our Cook political site for this morning. So when we look at this, what does stand out to me is that a lot of these Republican candidates that are, have, or have won these primaries are going to be in these races in Senate and governor primaries, where they are is outside of the mainstream and outside of where Republicans used to be. As we've sort of seen this, you know, fervor on the right, um, especially among the far right for wanting to ban abortion, it's not just banning abortion, it's not even allowing exceptions, which used to be sort of the mainstream Republican position, allowing exceptions for rape, incest, health of the mother. Now it's uh, candidates in Wisconsin, governor's race, both of the Republicans only support life of the mother. And that's where other candidates that have won in Arizona, uh, Carrie Lake in Arizona stands too. So do voters deem that too far outside for their comfort? Speaking of outside the mainstream, you've given me a 
great segue into Arizona. Uh, Sharish, let's pick up about Arizona um, because you've covered your share of MAGA rallies and the MAGA movement. And uh, Arizona appeared to go full MAGA on Tuesday, up and down the ballot. Kerry Lake for governor, Blake Masters for Senate. Rusty Bowers, the House Speaker who testified to the January 6th committee, lost his primary. Uh, we've got a conspiracy theorist nominee for Secretary of State. Uh, any thoughts on what makes Arizona so unique this time around, as opposed to the other states where the results for Trump world were a bit more mixed? Well, I, I think in Arizona, the only one, I believe, where you had an incumbent uh, be sent home was, was, was Bowers. Right. And that was in a, in a, in a, in a house seat. And those are really small. And, and uh, I don't know the particulars of his neighborhoods and, 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 uh, and what sort of Republican voters uh, live there. But, and, and that's the thing. These are primaries. These are primaries. And you tend to attract, um, you know, the, the most um, unusual people in primaries. Let's put it that way. Sure. And, and, you know, in Georgia, look what happened there, for example. I mean, um, the incumbents won, and the only place where the the Trump candidate won was for an open seat for lieutenant governor. And half the people in Georgia don't even know what that person does. I don't even know what that person does. So uh, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily read too much into it. It is, however, interesting that Arizona could have a governor who is absolutely ready to throw out the results of a, of a Democrat winning that state. You know, that's kind of that's scary. And I, I don't pe- I don't think people have fully appreciated the danger of, of what might happen there. I, I did want to touch on one point on, on, on abortion. I mean, when I first started covering politics, um, even a little bit back in the in the late 80s, the the all the smart Republican strategists were saying, you know, you can say whatever you want in a Republican primary when it comes to abortion, whatever you want, because. At, at the end, Roe v. Wade prevents anything from happening. And in Florida, where I covered 20 years, um, the state constitution even had stronger language than that. Okay. So now all the smart strategists are, oh no, now what? Because now what you say in a state house seat race matters because a lot of these states are now looking at laws that would that would absolutely ban it, as Jessica says, you know? And uh, interestingly, the day after the the, the opinion was leaked, um, Mike Pence was in South Carolina. I was there covering him. And I, and I asked him, if abortion, as you say, is murder, why not have a federal law banning it? I mean, why wouldn't we want to ban it if, if, if indeed that's the case? And he was very clear, you know, this should be decided by the states. And that's kind of an, an intellectually indefensible position, honestly. And that's where Republicans now are on this is uh, if it's so bad, it should be banned everywhere. And of course, they don't want that because most Americans don't agree that it is murder in all cases. So uh, this is a, I think this is a really big deal. And of course, it takes Democratic candidates to make it a big deal for them, but they probably could. And some Republicans now are coming out for a federal ban, uh, which is going to just uh, divide the party even further. And the party that's divided on an issue like that is the party that's at a disadvantage. Oh, absolutely. Right. And, and I don't think uh, I don't think anyone expected two years ago for Roe actually to be overturned. I mean, you know, the, the even, you know, George W. Bush was cognizant of what it would mean for these kind of things to happen. Everyone for 30 years gave lip service to uh, the anti-abortion wing of the party and uh, wanted to placate them, but also knew that 
what gave them the ability to win elections in a lot of places was suburban, moderate women uh, Republicans who are more interested in tax, marginal tax rates than they are in social policy. And, um, you know, we're, we're potentially right back to those suburban districts deciding a lot of these elections. Zach, we had a couple of uh, Trump wins in Michigan or for, you know, Trump aligned candidates. Uh, Tudor Dixon got the governor's nomination and John Gibbs knocked off Peter Meyer, one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach after January 6th. But the Meyer race was another one of these where Democrats put their thumbs on the scale to help the more extreme Republican prevail in the hopes that they get a general, a weaker general election candidate. Um, this also worked in Pennsylvania, for instance, where they boosted Doug Mastriano for governor. There's been quite a bit of blowback on this strategy, though. Uh, could Democratic groups live to regret these moves? They could. Um, and I think we're, we're in an environment where a Republican of any stripe could win some of these offices and not just for Congress, but in offices where they could actually have a say in overturning elections at the state level, you know, secretary of state and governor. Um, and so it makes those races particularly more important. And you're right. We've seen this all across the board. Um, not just in house races, but in governor's races. I saw it when I was out in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, um, for, a um, both the Senate race as well as for a, a house race for the new seat in the Denver suburbs. Uh, both, you know, Democrats didn't, you know, it didn't work there. Um, they're the sort of more moderate candidate that Republicans wanted nominated there, um, ended up getting that, that nomination, but it ha is working in places like Michigan and Arizona. And so, yeah, they got uh, Joe O'Day in, in, uh, Colorado and, exactly. and that they have an outside chance to, to flip that, they hope. Exactly. Yeah. They, they were hoping for a guy named Ron Hanks to win that nomination uh, by running these ads very sneakily. Uh, that would sort of do like, oh, you know, so-and-so is too conservative and backs Trump too much. Right. And so, you know, could, you know, argue and have argued, oh, we're just trying to get a head start on the general election, but ends up actually boosting these nominees. We've seen this all the way back in 2012 when Claire McCaskill uh, used a similar gambit to get Todd Akin nominated. Um, and obviously McCaskill ended up winning that race in 2012 and winning another term in the U S Senate. Um, so, you know, your, your colleague and mine, Kirk Beto has written about this in the past, you know, in, in a highly polarized environment, you could see a Congressman John Gibbs, you could see a governor Tudor Dixon. And so I think that's something that we all have to be mindful of. And then speaking of Meyer, um, he came back into the fold after his loss, very, very narrow loss to John Gibbs. Uh, but the next day he was back on board at a Republican unity rally. Let's listen to that. Just want to now officially introduce, send my congratulations and wish you the best of luck and all that is to come. Your Republican nominee for Michigan's third congressional district, Mr. John Gibbs. After the Meyer result, Republicans who voted to impeach are uh, officially endangered. Uh, we had two Washington state Republicans who did pretty well, but that was in a jungle all party primary uh, where it was the top two candidates advanced. Uh, and they did fine. Uh, but that brings us to Liz Cheney, who is uh, next up on the docket, so to speak. Last night, she brought out the big gun, uh, namely her father, who recorded an ad on her behalf. Uh, let's listen to that. In our nation's 246 year history, there has never been an individual who is a greater threat to our republic than Donald Trump. He tried to steal the last election using lies and violence to keep himself in power after the voters had rejected him. He is a coward. A real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. Lynn and I are so proud of Liz for standing up for the truth, doing what's right, honoring her oath to the Constitution. 
when so many in our party are too scared to do so. There is nothing more important she will ever do than lead the effort to make sure Donald Trump is never again near the Oval Office. And she will succeed. Jessica, can a little Cheney shock and awe help out his daughter's candidacy, or is it uh, too late given the environment she's running in? I mean, when you're running an explicitly anti-Trump ad in a state that he won with 70% of the vote, <laughs> I think it shows where Liz Cheney's mind is, and it's not on winning re-election. It's looking ahead. And yes, she has stood up and done all of these things to great political harm. She is almost but certain to lose her seat there. And, you know, there's moments where I just think back trying to tell someone, you know, from 2002 or 2003 that in the year, you know, 2022, that Dick Cheney and his daughter would not be conservative enough for the Republican Party. Of course, it doesn't go down to conservatism at all. It just goes down to fealty to President Trump. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this, she's going to continue to be one of the, she, she's going to lose her primary almost likely, you know, the places where it has saved people, like, as you mentioned in Washington state, because of their top two primary system, the only Republican Senator that voted for impeachment that's on the ballot is Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. Now she's lost a Republican primary for Senate before ended up winning a general due to a write-in campaign. So you can't count her out. She has a Trump back challenger and that race is going to be in about a little over a week and a half, but because they now have this new all party with the top four advancing and uh, then ranked choice voting in the fall, I still think she's going to be okay. But, um, you know, it is just when you talk to these members privately, what they will tell you and what they will say about Trump and what they fear is so much more pronounced than what they are able to say publicly. <clears throat> and, you know, I think there's a lot of them that as they see some of the 2024 polling on the Republican side, which I maintain it is far too early to extrapolate many results, but I, I do think where perhaps some of the January 6th hearings have hurt and just the continued focus on, um, you know, his litigation being paid for by the RNC and different things and whether or not Trump would announce before he's running for president before the midterms are over. You know, I, I think you're going to see, it does feel like some of this has waned Trump's influence because can he lift a candidate in a crowded primary to victory? Absolutely. We saw that this week, but his, his vote also has his endorsement, I think also has candidates with a ceiling as well. So it's not a complete, you know, silver bullet necessarily in certain instances, it can help. So lastly, um, Let's end with a little bit of a lightning round. Uh, what else struck the three of you this week about the primary results or just the, the, the state of this uh, election in general uh, as, we, as we approach general election season of the midterms? Any surprises, Jessica? Any ratings changes? Uh, why don't you go first, Jessica? Yeah, we don't have any ratings changes now. We, we moved a bunch of governor's races over the past few weeks. Um, Georgia governors toward Brian Kemp and lean Republican where he's still been there. There have been some, you know, another surprising battleground that's emerging in, in governor's races is Oregon where there's a three-way primary happening where Republicans have an outside chance there. Um, given that there is a very uh, well-funded um, independent candidate that used to be a Democrat in the legislature. Um, 
we've, but you know, Trump in these primaries, what has struck me by he's backing these candidates. He, he, we, we know this, but it just still to me as someone who looks at this strategically is he's done everything he can almost for Republicans to lose seats. Um, we moved uh, both Massachusetts and Maryland governor to solid D, meaning those are open seat Republican, open seats held by Republicans that we believe are going to easily go to Democratic hands. And that's because Trump meddled in those primaries, endorsing a primary challenger to Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. He then decided not to run. Um, and then, you know, with the meddling in, uh, in Maryland there as well, the Larry Hogan candidate not getting through, not even giving Democrats a chance. But more so it strikes me as, you know, the ways that he was able to keep candidates out of races. Doug Ducey in Arizona, you know, he in that governor's race, he endorsed the narrow, narrow second place finisher, Karen Taylor Robson, who which Robson, excuse me, who would have been a much stronger candidate than Carrie Lake. And now they've got to decide, okay, how are they going to spend to boost lake it really struck out stuck out to me because when the rga sent out their statement last night praising lake as being the being the winner it came from the vice chair which is iowa's which is the iowa governor kim reynolds and not from Ducey, who's the rga chairman because he really couldn't put out that statement but now they're sort of saddled with these election deniers in places but places where they still need to pick up seats so do you sort of dance with these types of candidates um what happens? And Ducey would have been an incredibly strong Senate candidate. And that's what Mitch McConnell and others wanted. And instead they're left with Blake Masters, another election conspiracy theorist, the Peter Thiel acolyte who has writings praising, you know, Nazi leaders and the Unabomber. Um, that is the state that I have heard Republicans begin to worry about the most because Mark Kelly still remains popular. It's a state that um, Biden only carried by three tenths of a point. Now Kelly ran ahead of Biden. His approval numbers are still strong and they very much worry about masters and his ability to keep this race in play. Sharish, any, uh, any surprises in the campaign season or, or from the primary results this week? Not really from the primary results this week, uh, but I will say I was out in Iowa at the Family Leader Conference recently, and that's a group of you know evangelical Christians. And I was taken by how many of the folks I spoke to um, are have moved on already to Ron DeSantis, and and I attribute that to the January sixth hearings doing just an amazing job of presenting exactly what Donald Trump did and and how he did it, and. And and the and the sense I got was not that they necessarily believe everything that uh, that they put forward, but it's like, okay, well, he's damaged goods. Ron DeSantis is not, and so uh, we can get all the fight with uh, none of the crazy. And I think that's what uh, th- they're seeing, you know, in, in the Florida governor. I don't know whether he'll actually end up uh, the nominee. I mean, <laughs> two and a half years is an eternity. Um, the other thing that strikes me is that is that Liz Cheney ad by her dad never mentions Wyoming, did it? I mean, in the entire thing. And uh, what it does say is she's running to make sure that Donald Trump never gets near the Oval Office again, which is basically just saying, I'm going to run for president and I'm going to just go after that man hammer and tongue to make sure that he doesn't become president, which is an amazing reason to run, isn't it? I mean, Donald Trump had nobody like that. None. Jeb Bush had $100 million and he spent like two thirds of it on Marco Rubio. 
Um, and so if he thinks he's going to get a pass in the Republican primaries coming up, you know, he, he needs to think through this several times because the day he announces that slush fund he's got right now, the leadership pack on which he can spend money on anything, he can rebuild his plane, he can buy cheeseburgers. The day he announces that becomes a tightly controlled entity that uh, he can only do a very few things with and cheeseburgers and airplane fixing is not among them. So uh, I've been amazed at how quickly the party seems to be turning, even though the polls don't necessarily show this yet nationally, how party the how quickly the the activists in the party are turning toward the next uh, the next thing, which is the guy down in Tallahassee. Zach, how about you? Can I cheat and talk about two? Um, yeah. I want to want to weigh in on Kansas really quickly um, because I think what really raised my eyebrows was just that turnout numbers. So, you know, over nine hundred thousand people voting uh, in a in a midterm non-November election, which is pretty astounding. Compare that to the 2020 presidential race in Kansas when 1.3 million people voted. Um, that's you know pretty close to presidential turnout. Like I said, in the dead of summer uh, is a pretty astounding uh, statistic and, indi- and an indication of just how powerful the abortion issue is going to be, I think. Uh, and, I, and I've seen a lot of, on that front, I've seen a lot of polls uh, on the generic ballot where the Democrats do better with uh, registered voters than they do with likely voters. Uh, right. Which which tells me that turnout is going to be key because you've got to get some of those registered voters who may not otherwise turn out. You've got to get them to the polls. And this indicates that maybe with this issue, you can. That's right. And I think that's why you're seeing not just in Kansas, but um, Democratic candidates and uh, aligned super PACs talking about abortion um, all over the country, including in really deep red states in places like Missouri and Montana and Alaska. Um, and so this is not just a Kansas thing. Um the other sort of thing that surprised me this week, uh, the Senate, not not so much the result, but how it, it came down, the Senate this week uh, approved a treaty that would expand NATO to include Finland and Sweden, one of the first countries in the world to do that. And the only senator to vote against that was Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, um, which we sort of knew was coming for a while. But on the floor of the Senate during that debate, Senator Tom Cotton uh, rather pointedly, didn't name Holly, but said, I'm not sure why somebody would have voted to add other countries like North Macedonia to NATO in previous um, votes, but is now voting against adding countries to NATO. Hmm, I wonder why that might be. I, I think it was a rather stark uh, starting gun to potentially a, a 2024 presidential contest. Both Cotton and Holly are viewed as likely contenders for the presidential nomination at some point, if not in 24, then in the future. Um, and I think that's a rather stark difference between them and something that Cotton certainly noticed. Great conversation today with Sharish Date, Jessica Taylor, and Zach Cohen. Now it's Bill's favorite time of the show, and we'll go around the horn again with your favorite story of the week. Funny, sad, important, or just a great read? Uh, Sharish, why don't you go first? Well, I, I, I have to replace the, the, the funny with the most irritating story, which was uh, the, the guy who tried to overthrow democracy decided to very, be very cute and endorse Eric. Okay, great. Who the hell cares? He tried to overthrow the damn government to stay in power. I mean, let's move on from who the man is trying to endorse and not endorse. And uh, alternatively, let's make people take his endorsements as a badge of shame rather than something of honor. Jessica. So this isn't political, but it kind of is. And I know you like this story too, Jeff. Um, Cracker Barrel, which oh, is- Oh, God, really- I love it. 
which is one of my favorite restaurants. I'm from the South. I'm a Tennessee girl. Started in Lebanon, Tennessee. Um, that they were introducing impossible sausage. So the vegan-based, plant-based sausage. And the blowback that they got on comments and Facebook calling them woke and bending to this and I'm not going to eat here anymore. Um, no one's forcing you to eat the veg- the vegan sausage. Like no one, if you go to Cracker Barrel, no one will say you must have this. And listen, Cracker Barrel is probably, it is delicious because everything is cooked in bacon fat. <laughs> and um, they're, I mean, even the vegetables are cooked in bacon fat. So they're not really vegan. You can eat to your heart's country content when you go into Cracker Barrel. It is a kitschy store where you can get little like antique looking things and little tchotchkes and candy and everything. I mean, I I adore it. This is where my family stopped all the time on trips. It wasn't even a question of where we were going to stop. Um, I adore their roast beef and chicken and dumplings and green beans and all of it. And breakfast don't even get me started. So backlash over that um has been interesting uh to watch but um it seems as though they are going to keep this on their menu and i think ultimately when push comes to shove everything is just too damn tasty i don't think people are actually going to boycott um cracker barrel over this no the only reason i feel bad about cracker barrel is i can never solve the little puzzle with the golf tees that they put on the table (laughs) uh zach favorite story of the week i gotta go to um uh, one of my colleagues at Bloomberg, Daniel Flatley, wrote um, a little bit over a week ago. Uh, one of those stories that I get to the bottom and I wish that there was more of it. <laughs> and it sort of goes into the history of how this semiconductor bill that passed uh, Congress in the last couple of days um, kind of went through a gauntlet, not just of the contents of it, but literally just the name of it. Um, it started off years ago, uh, Senators Chuck Schumer and Todd Young calling it the Endless Frontier Act, which is a sort of very high-minded, aspirational nod to a World War II inventor and public policy guru named uh, Vannevar Bush, who sort of wrote this landmark report that laid the groundwork for the National Science Foundation. And that reform of the NSF was the sort of basis for this bill that would eventually balloon uh, into a much larger semiconductor bill. Um, and over the course of the sort of growing bill, it also changed its name a couple of times. When it passed the Senate, it became the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. When it made it over to the House, it became the American Competes Act. When the White House wanted to sell it, it became the Bipartisan Innovation Act. Other lawmakers wanted to call it the Make It in America Act. Um, and then it, when it got slimmed down again, it became the CHIPS Act. And then it became the CHIPS Plus Act when they added a couple more things to it. And we ended up with the uh, very inspirational CHIPS and Science Act. I think it became a, a really interesting illustration of the, the legislative sausage making uh, that can make uh, the, the, the perfect, the not so perfect, uh, and the politics of addition, the politics of subtraction. And my story is sad, but also somehow inspiring. It was the, uh, the passing of a legend, Vin Scully, uh, after 70 plus years in the broadcast booth for Dodgers and national, uh, nationally televised baseball games. Uh, he finally passed away in his 90s. Uh, my first memory of Scully was listening to him on the game of the week with Joe Garagiola uh, in the, this was probably the early to mid 80s when I was a kid. Um, the guy was a uh, was something of a poet. Um, and we actually pulled a little bit of audio. Let's uh, listen to his call after Hank Aaron's home run. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. 
Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Butner goes back to the fence. It is gone. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron. And we've just been getting audio like that all week of his, of his great calls. Uh, there was one when he, uh, he was calling uh, Sandy Koufax perfect game from 1965, and his line was 29,000 people in the stadium and a million butterflies as Koufax delivered his, uh, his pitches to the final batter. Um, the guy could have been a newscaster. He could have been a Walter Cronkite type, but, uh, but for those of us who love baseball, fortunately, he, uh, he chose sports, and, uh, and, and we were lucky to have him. That's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to Zach Cohen, Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government, Jessica Taylor, Senate and Governor's Editor for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, and Sharish Date, White House Correspondent at HuffPost. I'm Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief at National Journal, sitting in for Bill, who is on vacation. But he did leave us with a podcast for next Tuesday on the threat to America posed by Christian nationalism. Until then, thanks for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable, and we'll see you back next week.